of the cornerstone from Daniel chapter 2 verses 24 to 49 and this is part 4 in our series in the book of Daniel. So last week we looked at how King Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed after dreaming a dream. He wanted answers. Thing is the details of the dream he could not remember or he would not disclose to the wise men who now find themselves in an impossible situation. An order is given to slaughter the whole of them, including Daniel and his friends, because King Neb thought they were useless. But then Daniel has an audience with the king and gains some extra time, something that was denied to the the other wise men. And, and, And so he's... Daniel and his friends spend this time in prayer, waiting on God to reveal not only the dream, but also the interpretation of the dream. And sure enough, God answers their prayer and he reveals overnight the dream, the interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel praises God over this. He hasn't being to the king yet, he doesn't know what the response is going to be, but he's going to praise God anyway because God answered his prayer. Now what we have before us, the dream and the interpretation, is, is one of the most clear and precise historical prophecies in Scripture. We know it is accurate, we know it is precise because we can look back and see how it has been fulfilled. It's a lot easier to see how prophecy, how accurate it is after the event, right? And not before. And what we have before us is indeed amazing. And as we delve into uh, the second half of, of this chapter, we're going to be talking about some things that will stand out for us. And I've divided it roughly into four areas. First of all, we have to marvel at Daniel's godly character in verses 24 to 30. The more you get to know Daniel, uh, the more we like him. Last week we spoke of his self-control and the courage that he displayed in a crisis. And there will be other crises in the rest of this book as we know. But here there's another couple of things about his character, his godliness. First of all, he showed compassion. As we read, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Instead of the executioner looking for Daniel, Daniel goes to the executioner. We don't tend to do that, do we? We tend to sort of run away and hide. Daniel goes to Arioch. We even get his name. And, and Arioch still had a standing order to slaughter the wise men. And yet here we have Daniel giving an order to Arioch, don't kill the wise men. He didn't have to do this. 
But he did it because he was showing compassion to the rest of them. Interesting that in the following chapters, this act, this favour, this act of compassion will not be reciprocated by the others. And this tells me, this shows me that while we can't dictate how people will react to us, what godly people do is that they can at least control how we react to them. We will have compassion, irrespective many times of how they will come after us. The other thing is that he showed humility. Let me read these words again. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner. Includes all of it, doesn't it? Uh, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Before engineers and before doctors and before dentists and psychologists and psychiatrists, we had enchanters, magicians, diviners. But there is a God, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And as your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As as for me, he says, and note this, he says, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive. but so that your majesty may know that the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Now, Daniel reiterates what these other enchanters and magicians and, and gurus and soothsayers has already, have, had already told him that it is impossible what the king is asking. This, this has to come from a supernatural world, from out of this world. And it was impossible for Daniel himself. He says, I can't do it. Just when you thought that Daniel could soak in the accolades, bask in the glory and all of that, Daniel steps back and recognises that whatever gift he has, whatever wisdom, whatever power, whatever knowledge, does not come from him. It is only God who made the difference. This humility stands in total contrast to the pomp and the pride that Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom were immersed in, in all of that man-made glory. And we see this everywhere today, don't we? Humility is frowned upon. In fact, humility has been frowned upon for thousands of years. Even during the time of of Jesus, humility was seen as something bad, horrible. 
the same today. In fact, during the whole month of June here in Australia, there is a whole Pride Month. You know what that's about. Whole month we call Pride. We celebrate Pride. The very thing that God opposes, we're going to celebrate it. Just think about that. That will celebrate the pagan behaviour and pride and push their agenda. Not only did we tolerate it before, did we accept it now, but we're now going to be celebrating it. How far removed have we become or have we actually gone back to the Babylonian pagan times in our behaviour? I think that's what's happening, right? In verses 31 to 38, we see something else, another aspect of of this that stands out. It's this delegated authority. This is the message that we can see in in these words, the delegated authority. Now, this was the dream, Daniel says, and, and we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty... You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you. God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. In verses 36 to 38. As always, Daniel shows respect to the king. And he does not say these words lightly, and he's not being insincere in his compliments. What he's saying is absolutely true. He was the most powerful person, human being, on the face of the earth in that time. He was the mightiest of all the kings. He had achieved so much in so few years. He wasn't all that old. And and, and he has achieved so much as so few in world history. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon remain one of the the greatest uh, marvels of the ancient world. And the words here actually sound very similar to the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve back in the, in the garden, doesn't it? In the garden of Eden he said this, chapter 1 verse 26, he said, they made you, that, they, that they may rule, that they may rule over the fish in the sea. This is God talking about mankind. They may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. It also echoes the words of Psalm 8. But whatever power man attains, whatever power he has, whatever glory he has on the earth as humans, he did not attain these, and much as he liked to say so, on his own strength. 
tend to use the phrase self-made millionaire. Self-made. What does that mean? Well, it means he didn't inherit his billions from mum and dad. I think that's what they mean. But even then, where did mum and dad get it from? Whatever we have, whatever knowledge, whatever intelligence, whatever title, whatever capacity we have, that roof over your head, and now you think you've built it, you paid for it, maybe the bank owns 90% of it still, it's not yours. Don't, you know, don't bask in it, don't show off. It can all disappear in a moment. Whatever you have has been given to you for a time. Whatever power you have in the office or in politics or in the community or even from the pulpit, it has been delegated from above. Ultimately, everything still belongs to God. So, as Nebuchadnezzar lay on his bed that eventful night, it tells us he, has, he was thinking about the future, what the future held, what's going to happen. Like, the, the, the more you have, the more you start to worry. How are we going to keep this all together? My kingdom's great, stretches from boundary to boundary, and all of this, and so many people. And now, the more you have, the less sleep <laughs> seems to follow. No doubt that his, his, his thoughts focused on his reputation, his place in the changing course of history and especially his legacy, what's going to come after me, his glory, his fame. And this is when God turns up and he shows him the vision of a large and dazzling statue. And and this single statue was a composite, so to speak, of, of the kingdoms of the Gentiles. There are four distinct kingdoms but there, all, there is also a commonality between them, as, in, as, as is shown in, in, in the vision here. Uh, they all peaked in glory and power at one time. And also, these are all Gentile kingdoms, which subjugated not just other nations, but also dominated the nation of Israel. God's own people as well. But despite the suffering and the punishment that God's people went through, God's people recovered. The the faithful remnant continued while these other kingdoms never did. So there's a lesson here, not just for kings, but everyone. Jesus taught us that We should not lay up treasures on earth, but rather in heaven. We should not focus on the temporal, but on the eternal. We should not dwell on ourselves and our own glory, but on God and his eternal glory. Which brings us to the next point that stands out for me here. It's that fading glory. In verses 39 to 43. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. 
Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things, it's pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a, a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as, this, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw the iron mix baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now the message of this dream from God would also be humbling. That whatever glory he, he was enjoying now is not going to last, not with him and not even with his own dynasty. It was going to fade away like all the other kingdoms. But at least there, like, the, the, there was going to be some relief in that these other kingdoms were going to be inferior to his. And, and some relief in the fact that it wasn't going to happen during his time, but it was going to happen after him. Oh, at least I won't have to suffer. <laughs> Thank you. At least, you know, this world's going to be a mess, but I'm not going to be around anyway, so it's okay. The statue had these characteristics. It had a head made of gold, which represents the Babylonian Empire, which ruled from 612 BC to 539 BC. The chest made of silver, are the Medo-Persians, 539 to 331 BC. The belly of the thighs, um, from that there, they, they were made of bronze and represents the Greek Empire, 330, 331 BC to 63 BC. And the legs of iron and clay represents the Roman Empire, 63 BC to 476 AD. You might have noticed that there is a, a downward progression, uh, a deterioration of the, the value or the quality of the metals which represent these kingdoms. The head of gold is glorious. The breast of silver is a little bit cheaper. The belly of brass deteriorates to legs of feet and, and feet of iron, which are, are mixed with clay. The further down you go, things get worse. Now, as will be the case with much of the prophecy that we see, not only in the book of Daniel, but in the rest of the scriptures, there is much in this vision that is not interpreted or explained. What was not interpreted by Daniel, 
did not need to be known by Daniel or the king. So we should be careful speculating or getting lost in the details, which when we go to interpret prophecies, you know, books of Ezekiel and Revelations and others, we tend to get lost in the details sometimes. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Now, none of the kingdoms or kings are identified. We don't have their names except for the kingdom, the first one, which is the head, the kingdom of Babylon, which represents, which is represented by King Nebuchadnezzar. The meaning and interpretation of these mysterious details will be evident, will make much more sense, not at that particular time, 600 BC, but when they are fulfilled as we look back after the fact and we'll say, wow, how accurate was that? So even though it is not named, much more is said about the fourth and last kingdom than all the others. This is interesting because it was the furthest removed from the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, 600 years later. To give you an idea of what 600 years later would mean for us, 600 years from where we are today, 600 years back, we are still in the 1400s, in the, in the, before the Reformation. It's an amazing, and look at what has happened in the last 600 years. So why did this kingdom receive so much attention in the interpretation? Well, for one thing, it will be the longest and most, I suppose, influential for the rest of history. The other is that geographically, compared to the others, it would have the widest reach. If you look at how far the Roman Empire extended all the way from from England down to Middle East and and further back from north to south down to Egypt. More importantly, something more significant was going to happen during the Roman Empire and I'll get to that. The Roman Empire are the feet made of a mixture of iron, iron very strong, and clay, very weak. There was a strength and there was a weakness, moulded into something, and they don't mix very well together, do they? The fact that it says here that the fact that the people will be a mixture and will not remain United could be a reference to the racial and cultural and religious differences that will be within its kingdom. You can imagine the different groups and cultures that the Roman Empire try to hold together. Its greatest strength eventually proved to be its greatest weakness. They just couldn't hold the empire together towards the end. But it is 
significant that no world empire ever since the Romans, ever since the Roman Empire broke up, never have we had an empire like them. Because I think that the Roman Empire, and let's include the Greeks in this, that the the Greco-Roman Empire gave rise to what we now know as Western civilizations. What is happening in Europe, uh, the Americas, particularly North America. So even though the the Roman Empire no longer exists, the the Greco-Roman influence is still strong in our civilization. In the last two centuries, a couple of European nations attempted to emulate the glory of Rome, conquering other nations, the uh, Austrian-Hungarian, then the the Germans, and even, I suppose, the the Russians. Um, The fact that their emperors were called Tsars or Tsars or, or or Kaiser, which means Caesar. Caesar or Kaiser, Kaiser, the, the, the emperors. That means you, even in the name that they were given their leaders, meant that they were, their vision, the, what they were attempting to do is to emulate the glory of the Roman Empire. And today, even though we live in relative peace, it's underneath, there, is, there are rumblings, aren't there? building weapons, they're amassing missiles more and more and we have to keep things together with peace treaties. Ah, no, no, we're much too intelligent, we're much too civilised to go back to the barbaric ways we used to do things, sort things out. Really? What do you think is happening in the Ukraine today? Everything is, is, is... is boiling under the surface. Don't get too comfortable. Any moment, things can go back to to the way things always have been. We're not that smart. The human heart hasn't changed. Don't don't be fooled by the by the technology, the so-called greatness and the discoveries that we're making. Don't be fooled by that because that just fuels man's pride that we can sort everything. No, you can't. Don't you think God knows all about this? Any power, any wisdom, any discovery that we have has been given to us, delegated to us by God. And the further we remove ourselves from God's word, the more, the closer we come to his judgment. But I don't want to run ahead of time to the rest of the book of Daniel. But let's look at the, the fourth and final aspect here of this chapter is God's eternal glory from verses 44 and 45. We're just going to look at these two. In a time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. 
It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. It will, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. So, up to this stage, I suppose the king, what he was hearing from Daniel, he would have felt rattled, but not too rattled. Things were going pretty well so far, relatively speaking, to the dream. But as the movie rolled on, as its playback, right, as, you know, Daniel's playing back the the vision, the dream that he had, suddenly a, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. Something interrupts. It strikes the statue in its feet on which the, the rest of the statue at, at the lowest point, the most brittle part, and destroys it and it just falls over. And it, it doesn't just stand there, it actually disintegrates into dust eventually. The winds blow over every trace of the statue as though it never was. It never existed. The stone that hits it, though, not cut by human hands, grows and grows and grows until it became this great mountain which filled the whole earth. starts so small, like a mustard seed even. And it starts to grow and grow. So if the king wanted to be part of a, a kingdom filled with glory which lasted forever, he couldn't look to, his, to himself, within himself, even to his own descendants. He had to look at the rock, at the stone of his vision. It is not the head of gold, nor the, the breast of silver, nor the entire statue, which is glorious and eternal. What is eternal is the stone that smashes everything else. It, it is the stone which brings the destruction of what he thought was an everlasting kingdom. But no, it's just brittle. And yes, at the end of this chapter we read that Nebuchadnezzar recognises the power of God and gives all these rewards towards Daniel and we think, wow, Nebuchadnezzar is turning the corner. Uh, No, next chapter, there's still work to do. We have to get to chapter 4 and the events that happen there for things to to change a lot, lot more. It is quite obvious that this whole vision points to none other than Jesus Christ and his kingdom. What Daniel sees now in the fullness of time is when the kingdom of God will break in. When the king of kings and lord of lords will come 600 years later. But his glory was veiled. Humble origins, born in a manger, despised, 
and rejected by men. At one time, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and some teachers of the law and the chief priests, they came to him and they questioned his authority. Where are you getting all this stuff from? So he told them a parable which was followed by this. In Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, Jesus looked directly at them and and, and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. What happened to the loving, soft-spoken Jesus? I thought he loved me. I thought he was nice and cuddly like a little lamb. I just spent uh, three weeks in Paraguay and um, I keep hearing the the phrase, most of my relatives are Christians, uh, evangelicals, but Paraguay is very much a Catholic country, so a lot of my friends are Catholic. And they keep talking about El Niño Dios, the baby Jesus. (laughs) Baby Jesus. They're a lot more comfortable with the baby Jesus, you see. The little stone. But Jesus grew. Jesus died, rose again, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again. You've still got your mind fixed on the, the little baby Jesus. And the messianic proclamation contained in this image of this precious cornerstone is, is so important in the scriptures. You, you can't reduce it, you can't miss it because it is proclaimed by Isaiah, the, the same image of, the, of the, the stone, right? The cornerstone. Isaiah, Zechariah, Matthew, Mark, Acts, Paul and Peter, they all speak about it. It's from Psalm 118, and which points to this apparent paradox. This stone is both rejected and at the same time powerful. On the one hand, it is powerless, scorn and unimpressive. On the other hand, it's revealed to be powerful, dangerous, impressive, honoured. This is the nature of the... This is the nature of the gospel we preach. This is the nature of the church and the rock on which we stand. And ultimately, the gates of hell will not prevail against this stone, this rock. And yes, for thousands of years, believers have been persecuted, tortured, killed for their faith. It may seem like it's a kingdom that rather than expanding, that it is being pressed on all sides and doomed for failure and irrelevance. And there is a much stronger motivation to follow. You see, the church can proclaim, 
focus on the glorious conquering king, of which, yes, we do follow. We want that. We desire that. It's much easier to follow a conquering king than it is to follow a suffering servant that he is as well. We don't like the message of the suffering servant. And yet our Lord is both. His church, of which we are part, is now living in the in-between times, his first coming and his second coming. His first humble coming has already happened. His second coming will be glorious. The trumpets and it's going to be a lot of fireworks. So then, since the Lord's first coming, the the kingdom of God is a present reality. It is indeed here, but not yet fully realised. For his kingdom is, what did Jesus say to Pilate? Not of this world. And as God's children, we're called to pray regularly. And he taught us to pray. In the prayer he taught us, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that. We have to pray this. And so we know that in in a very real sense his, his kingdom has come, but we also pray that it would fully come and be be fully manifest. And we trust the words of Revelation. So uh, these words are sung again and again in the Hallelujah chorus, right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What a glorious message, right? This is the God we serve. This is the God who loved us and we belong to his kingdom. Amen.